we would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging that the land on which we record is the occupied, traditional, and unceded territory of the Stalo First Nation. It is okay to focus down on one or two things if you're overwhelmed, because there's a lot going on in the world, and it can seem like you just want to turn it all off, which is understandable, but it's okay to take it in the bite-sized pieces that you feel you're able to consume. Welcome to the Ending Poverty Together podcast. I'm Shalane, and we're here to discuss big questions about poverty in bite-sized ways. Nikki Waits has been working in the nonprofit world for over 20 years. She has a BA in communications and an MSc in rural extension studies, examining the role of media and communication in international aid and development. Her current focus is on working with children and youth in war-torn and conflict-affected countries. She has worked on education, food security, legal justice, protection, and other programs. Nikki's work has taken her to dozens of countries, including Afghanistan, Iraq, South Sudan, Bangladesh, and Haiti. She currently holds the position of Vice President of International Development at Big Bad Boo Studios. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and I just feel like I really have to start with how does international development and Big Bad Boo Studios go together? (laughs) That's a great question, and one we get quite regularly. I bet. Um, So Big Bad Boo is an animation house. Uh, We produce cartoons and comic books, and the company was founded around 2005 to address the lack of diversity and inclusion in children's entertainment. At the time, it was something like 70 or 80% of speaking roles in children's cartoons were white male leads. So there was really a lack of representation um, there. And so the company was founded uh, to create cartoons and children's content with more diversity. From there, UNICEF and the U.S. government and a few other funding agencies started to hear about what we were doing and some of the programming we were coming out with, and that it was really teaching children life skills, civic values, peace education, peaceful conflict resolution. Mm. And so we started using one of the flagship programs we have, which is A Thousand and One Nights, which is all the old tales of Aladdin, Sinbad, Alibaba. Okay. We started using it internationally, um, uh-huh. one of the first countries was Iraq as a life skills program. So we wrote out a curriculum around it. So children were able to do a short previewing activity in the classroom led by a teacher. And then they watch an animated episode and then they do an activity or worksheets afterwards. And so that was sort of really our first foray into international development. And it's Mm -hmm. just expanded out from Mm. there. So if you really think about the edutainment approach, you know, the one everyone can identify with is Sesame Street, which is Sesame teaches kids literacy and numeracy. But Sesame itself has an international component as well. They have programming unique for India and Afghanistan and Nigeria, um, really, again, showing the representation in those countries, uniquely designed for those countries. So we're very similar to that in that it's Mm -hmm. an edutainment approach that you can use our curricula in a formal school system, informal education systems, or during COVID, we were able to pivot and provide it to children doing at-home learning. Hmm, okay. Well, that seems like it really blends both 
parts of your experience when we talk about your education and your communication background, but then also being able to work internationally. I would love to spend just a few minutes chatting about your background a little bit, the work that you've done internationally, and even specifically the work that you've done with women, because I know that's something that you're really passionate about and that is very close to your heart. Yeah, definitely. So where would you like to start? How did you become involved in international development? We are a podcast that's focused specifically on poverty. So maybe there's some connections you can make there for us. How does media connect to poverty alleviation? There's a lot of directions we could go here. Yeah, sure. Well, as far as media's connection to poverty, and, you know, everything internationally is sort of cause and effect together, right? You know, war and displacement is a cause of poverty. Poverty is a cause of war and displacement. And so, you know, everything sort of ties in together. And so when you look at the media, if you look at when there's a coup in a country, for example, Mm -hmm. they take over the three M's first, the money, the military, and the media. And the media mm. is in there because if you control the media, you control the message. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you'll always see whatever group is trying to take over a country will go on to state-run television or state-run radio almost immediately and start explaining to the mass population what they're doing, what their cause is. And where that comes into rebuilding a country is, so if you're looking at, uh, you know, I worked in post-war Liberia and post-war Sierra Leone, is when you have these transitions to democracy, it is so fundamentally important that you have a functioning free and fair media so that people have access to reliable and accurate information. And so one of the very first things I did after I finished my master's degree was I worked at a company called Journalists for Human Rights. And we went into post-war environments and helped rebuild the free and fair press and help train journalists on what it meant to be impartial. Um, Because what will happen a lot in some of these countries is journalists will go to a press conference run by the minister of the environment and he'll Mm -hmm. say the environment's never been better because of me you know Mm. and journals are right the environment's never been better as quoted by the minister of the environment and so you know that's sort of a lighthearted example but when you get into matters of actually teaching people you know what is happening in their country and what democracy means and what these politicians are telling them and what's true and what's not true within what the politicians are telling them you know one of my favorite stories was in Ghana, where I did my master's degree during an election. This is, you know, back in like 2005. So before there was much internet coverage there. And one political um, candidate would start a rumor that the other candidate was dead. Um, you know, can't vote for that guy. He died. Um, and then the journalist would have to go knock on the guy's house and say, hi, we are here to confirm. Are you alive? Like live on air, right? On radio. Wow. Um, and the candidate would go, yes, I am alive. Um, they go, you heard it here. He's alive. Um, and so that's a very sort of fundamental function of dispelling rumors. Um, oh and so that's where the media becomes a really critical part of building and rebuilding democracies mm-hmm. during uh, during a transitional period. And so that's sort of the link with the international community and where I started my career. Mm -hmm. I think probably anybody listening would have an example of where media can be biased, is biased. So I'm sure that's quite relatable on a number of levels. Can you give some specific examples where you've seen media be used very strategically and effectively to help say, raise women out of poverty or to empower women, and and not specifically just women, but 
people in general? Yeah, sure. I think there's some great examples of, you know, in part just increasing women's representation in the media. So female journalists, that was something we worked a lot for in Liberia post-war was increasing the number of female journalists who were working in the country and the stories that they were allowed to work on, you know, so they weren't relegated to sort of more administrative roles or more gender stereotypical roles so that they are, you know, their voices are heard and that they're going and seeking out other women as well. And I think some of the stories that come out, you know, addressing poverty and addressing unpaid labor and things that male journalists might tend to more overlook in mm-hmm. some of these countries for a focus maybe more on politics or, you know, those in, like, those crazy investigative stories that every journalist wants, mm-hmm. but looking at inequality in the household. And there's, you know, a lot of that in South Sudan, which still has a lot of work to do to rebuild their media as well. But looking at some of those representation issues in the media and making sure that women are better represented and that some of those stories are told as well. Mm -hmm. What are some of the programs that you worked specifically with women on? Yeah, I've done a lot. Some of the ones uh, we did a lot of economic development programming in Afghanistan before the most recent Taliban takeover. So Mm -hmm. when I was at War Child, uh, I was there for about 10 years. Mm -hmm. We had a program that worked with women who, because of the first Taliban occupation, hadn't been able to get an education. So they couldn't read, they couldn't write, Mm. you know, they'd never really worked outside of the home. And so our program worked with them to start on functional literacy and numeracy, Mm -hmm. and then vocational skills, business skills, and then microfinance loans. So the whole program itself, the women were with us about two to three years, Mm -hmm. which is quite significant in the sector because the sector loves short-term programs and big impact. You you see it a lot of donate $5 and you'll save this child's life. And the reality of it is, is that development is a lot more complex and a lot more interrelated. And so it's not enough to just spend two weeks training someone to sew. You know, they need to understand business skills and to understand and have good business skills. You need functional literacy and numeracy. You know, Mm -hmm. you need to be able to count out change to someone and understand profit margins. And so we did that program. It was about five or six years that we had funding from the Canadian government for. And working with these women at the start of the program, they couldn't read or write. And by the end of the program, on average, they were contributing 25% of their household's monthly income, which is really significant, you know, and it was all done based on market assessments. So women were given a list of vocations they could go into. It was food processing, tailoring, small business ownership, like if you wanted to sell phone Mm -hmm. cards or Mm -hmm. something like that, handicrafts. um, And I think we had a couple of other ones in there. So also is to make sure to not flood the market with any Mm -hmm. one skill. You know, if you train 300 women in one neighborhood in sewing. Yeah. Well, kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah. And then yeah. we had business advisors who stayed with them. Um, so mm. once they started their business, the business advisors checked in on them regularly to make sure that they were charging the right prices, that the business was going okay. And, you know, at the end of that program, I was in Afghanistan talking to the women and I said, the funding is coming to an end. Uh, mm-hmm. I need to go back and try to get more money. What do you want me to say to try to convince people to give more money for this program? And I just remember this one woman stood up and she said, put me on the phone. I will talk to them myself. Uh. 
And I thought that's so fantastic because no that's the sense of empowerment. You cannot take that away. Right. No matter what happens in someone's life or in their country that's out of their mm-hmm. control moving forward, that sense of empowerment and that sense mm-hmm. of I can speak for myself, that to me is just, you know, I've always remembered that woman because I think that's, mm-hmm. that's what we're all working for is like helping people feel that sense of independence. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think when people are empowered, then they are less likely to be taken advantage of. They're less likely to be victims of domestic violence. They are more likely to, to feel like they have choice and they have options. Yeah, definitely. And that was one of the things that this program did, too, is the microfinance was done for the women in groups and neighborhood mm-hmm. associations. So they could meet together in groups of about 10 or 12 and mm. not only do their microfinance loans together, uh, which was group microfinance. So once we had contributed the initial startup capital, they paid it back uh, with mm-hmm. an administrative fee so they could keep administering it outside of us. But it was also that support group so that Mm. if everything else falls apart, they have this group of women that they can go to in domestic abuse situations uh, or if they fell on financial hardship and needed more money, the group could band together Mm -hmm. and help them. So it's creating those networks that are independent of anything that you're doing because you don't want that dependence. That is really, you know, what we should all be working towards. Mm -hmm. Well, and then you're building community as well, which at Food for the Hungry, a a huge piece of who we are is relationship-based. And so when you have that network of key relationships and people who are being supportive of you, then it's just more possible to make it through those challenging times. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what we saw, you know, for people to be able to relate to in other countries. That was what we saw during COVID is people's networks broke down and their Mm. support structures broke down. So for the first time, we all sort of had a very real sense of what that feels like to not have that support network there and then to maybe appreciate a little bit more um, mm-hmm. when it has come back and appreciate the value of it and the need for it. Mm-hmm. I think people listening are possibly, I, I just think of some of the people I interact with, some of the skepticism around the value of media and not not the influence of media, but I'm wondering if you can just speak to that a little bit about what are some of the challenges with media when it comes to international development, to poverty alleviation? What are some of the ways that you think media fails people? And then what can be done about that? Yeah, I think definitely one of the challenges is international development is you know, it's a lot easier to say someone, you know, give me $5, I will go buy food and feed this person. Mm-hmm. That's a very real connection about an urgent need, which is this person is hungry. If you give money, I can feed this person, mm-hmm. you know, and that's great. And that is needed out there. I don't want to in any mm-hmm. way insinuate it's not. I think more abstract concepts that operate a bit more at the macro level and at the longer term level, because, you know, building a free and independent media environment isn't going to, you know, make sure that children are in school tomorrow. It's not going to make sure people have food on the table tomorrow. But the reality of it is it will in the long term. And so Mm -hmm. media, like any other longer term investment in international development, is a bit of a harder pitch because it is a little bit more abstract when you're trying to explain it. You know, it's also one of those things where everyone in today's day and age, you know, Media is biased. Um, there's no right. way around it. It's very difficult, even here in North America, you know, to mm-hmm. say, oh, this this outlet's unbiased. Like, of course. the reality of it is we're all human. We all yeah. have innate biases. And 
we can try to put those aside and as much as we can. But, you know, there's media that leans left, there's media that leans right, there's Mm -hmm. some independent ones that try to stay in the middle, but, you know, clearly have one leaning one way or the other. Just by the definition of, you know, the articles that they choose to publish Mm -hmm. or the amount of page space or airtime that they give to a story. But I think it doesn't mean that it's not valuable just because something isn't perfect Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it can't have value and that it can't contribute to something. Mm -hmm. So I'm in Canada. I'm reading stories about international development. I'm engaging with media about things happening around the world. It can feel extremely overwhelming. It can feel paralyzing, actually. So what kind of an encouragement or ideas do you have for people on how to use media in a way that actually could promote healthy international development that could see systemic change happen in sustainable ways? Yeah, it's a great question. And one we're getting a lot now, which is the overwhelming factor. And I think the first thing is it's okay to be overwhelmed. I mean, we have access to so much information now. And so are there a lot of conflicts going on in the world that are quite dire and deserve our attention? Yes. Mm -hmm. But we also have access to just an overwhelming amount of information and images and video that sometimes pop up when we don't want to see them. You know, it's very hard. You can just be scrolling through something and all of a sudden a video starts playing and you're confronted with these very jarring images. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say the first thing is it is okay to be overwhelmed. I mean, I work in the sector and I get Mm -hmm. overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's okay to not know everything about every region of the world and everything that's happening in every region of the world. But I think what's important is to know that you can still make a difference. You can still choose to, you know, focus on one area or one subject, say, you know, I just really want to do something to help children and I'm going to help get that message out about Mm. what's happening to children in Ukraine. And I'm going to do that by talking to my friends and family or sharing some articles that I've seen or trying to start a conversation or reminding people that there are other conflicts, um, Mm. you know, forgotten conflicts going on. It is okay to focus down on one or two things Mm. if you're overwhelmed. Because there's a lot going on in the world and it can seem like you just want to turn it all off, which is understandable, but it's okay to take it in the bite-sized pieces that you feel you're able to consume. Mm-hmm. No, that's really, that's, um, I think, wise counsel. Thank you. I am also just curious, how are you approaching all of the different things that are happening in the world right now? I understand you're based in Toronto, so you are not in all of these countries around the world anymore. I guess part of me just wants to ask too, do you miss that? Do you miss being international? And how do you stay connected to some of the pieces, some of the places, some of the people that you've interacted with before you came to this um, Big Bad Boo Studios job? Yeah, sure. I mean, I definitely, on some levels, I miss it. I really liked meeting with people firsthand and hearing stories firsthand than, you know, relying on information that I would get here when I'm at home. So the chance to work in Iraq and work in Afghanistan and Darfur and all these other places I've worked in, you know, you meet amazing people and 
I think the advantage that that gives so many things is you hear all the positive stuff that's happening as well. You know, we get all Mm. the negative news and all the negative information, but there is amazing people and amazing groups in all of these countries working to affect change Mm -hmm. um, on an individual level, on a community level, and on a national level. And so being able to meet those people and see what they're doing with limited to no resources, you know, is really great and really quite, I don't say inspiring because that sounds a little bit condescending, but it really Mm. is. You know, Mm -hmm. um, you see people doing this work in almost impossible situations. And so I do stay connected with a lot of the people with whom I worked. Um, I actually helped a lot of my friends and former colleagues in Afghanistan during the Taliban takeover a couple of years ago get out of the country. So we've got specifically three families of upwards of eight people per family sometimes get settled here in Canada. And I'm still helping colleagues who weren't able to get out look at other options. Just last week, we got notification that one of my former colleagues' daughters got accepted into university in Canada. And so, yeah, so just really still staying connected that way. And the reality of it is the international development community, it sounds big, but it's also small and you've probably Mm. seen that in your work Mm -hmm. as well of yeah very much you know you work with someone in Haiti and five years later you're both in Afghanistan and you're like oh hey (laughs) you know and so you stay connected with everybody just naturally Mm -hmm. that way of you all tend to pop up in different locations so that's Mm -hmm. one of the things I think I really appreciate about the sector is there is a sense of community and there is a sense of you know we're all working towards the same goal no matter what agency we Mm -hmm. might be at, that we're all still trying to affect the same change. Mm -hmm. One of the topics that comes up routinely in the media is um, food security issues. How have you seen media help where there's been food security issues? And how have you seen it be a detriment or cause greater food insecurity? Yeah, I think definitely on the you know, helping sides uh, when the international media in particular is able to shine a light on some of these food security issues. Like a while ago, about five or so years ago, South Sudan was heading towards famine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the international community, sometimes you feel like you're standing on the top of a mountain screaming and no one's paying attention. And all of a sudden, for a few days, the international media shone a spotlight on it. And it really helped, um, one, to create awareness. Um, so mm-hmm. Sudan's the world's newest country. And so sometimes people forget it even exists. But to create an awareness about an urgent need for support and for funding, quite frankly, to help address it in the immediate term being food distribution and in the medium term of let's build build up some stronger farming systems here. And then I think, you know, detrimentally, it's hard because of attribution issues. But I think when you in some of these countries, you have politicians over promising, and people believe it, you know, they Mm -hmm. read it, they hear it, they read it in the newspaper, they hear it on the radio, and they think, oh, you know, I am going to be provided with this, or this politician is going to do this for my community, or they're going to build a market road and building, you know, which it seems like a simple thing of you have a community that has no connection to a major regional market. And so building a road to connect that community to the market can really quite be life-changing. And so at election time, you'll see these politicians making grandiose promises that they don't 
don't always follow through on, which is mm. something politicians in every country have in common. And so mm-hmm. then I think, you know, that can be quite detrimental to food security when people mm. believe that an external force is going to come in and improve. And sometimes it does. I don't mean there's some great politicians sure, out there. I don't want to knock that. But, you know, when you sort of sit and wait for an external force to come in instead of looking at the change that you can affect within your own community, mm-hmm. be it, you know, implementing sometimes very simple solutions of, you know, changing a food storage system. Um, we built a lot of, uh, in South Sudan, we built some elevated food storage so that goats couldn't get in and eat oh. grain, which was a big issue, um, helping people uh, store harvest in a way where stuff wasn't rotting. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes there are some simpler solutions that can be implemented in some of these areas, but it has to have community ownership of mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. We for sure find that within the work that we do in communities internationally is that sense of grassroots people in the community need to take ownership. They need to decide what they would like their communities to look like. And then there's supports along the way. But if that doesn't happen at that grassroots level and it's just those external forces, then um, it's not sustainable. It doesn't there isn't lasting change. Absolutely, because it has to be the community that maintains whatever Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. is being done. And so if they haven't bought into the solution or very pragmatically, you know, we built a lot of water points in Darfur. If people don't have the tools or the knowledge to maintain that, it's going to fall apart. Northern Ghana had a bunch of very large tractors by the side Mm -hmm. of the road with broken tires, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because some well-meaning individual had donated all these tractors and no replacement tires. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, at some point that falls apart. Um, And so, again, it, you know, could have been someone making a big grandiose announcement and yay and fantastic that you have these machines or whatever technology for the six or eight months that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to work, but it's just not realistically a long-term solution. Yeah. I'm just thinking back to something that you said earlier, a couple of things that you said earlier about how if we want to make a difference, we need to sort of pick a lane and drive in it and maybe focus in on a particular area. It connects with something you just said about um, South Sudan having a few days of media attention. And I think we are bombarded with a few days of so many things. How do we actually become specific? How do we help? How do we know? How do we assess? So I know that's a massive question, but I don't know how you would respond to that to someone. I think it leads back a little bit to that sense of overwhelm. Okay, I see this issue today and this country tomorrow, and how do I pick where to help? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and I think as a global community, we really have the capacity for one crisis at a time. So, you know, Gaza right now is a great example, massive crisis, massive humanitarian crisis going on. Ukraine is still going on. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, the international media shifted from mm-hmm. one crisis to another. And mm-hmm. it's not saying one is more worthy of coverage than another, but internationally, there's always kind of one. So we tend to sort of follow what we're being told to follow, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, I don't want to knock on it. Um, And it would be impossible to cover every issue that's going on in the world every day. But I think, you know, this time of year, I get asked a lot of, you know, who should I donate to? Just give me an organization, Mm -hmm. I'll donate to it. And I always start with, well, what are you interested in? You know, and that can be a very high level question. It can be a low level question, you know, of like, I'm interested in educating children. 
great. Mm -hmm. There are some wonderful agencies that focus on children's education. So Mm -hmm. seek those out. You can sign up for their listservs and make that your thing, um, Mm -hmm. that I'm going to support children's education, um, whether in Canada or internationally. You know, it doesn't have to be always international issues. So you can get as broad or as micro, but just start with, you know, what am I passionate about? And it Mm -hmm. is okay, again, like to not be able to sort of consume everything that's out there and understand every need that's out there because there's mm-hmm. a lot of needs in a lot of different countries. But there's also a lot of agencies doing really good work. And so it really mm-hmm. is kind of as simple as saying, you know, what am I passionate about? What is the change that I want to see? In Canada, all of the charities information is available on a CRA website. Mm-hmm. So you can just search the charities that you're interested in. It'll tell you percentage of revenues, expenditures, what goes internationally, or, you know, to programs if you're mm-hmm. staying in Canada. Um, it gives you a salary range for employees. Or you can call up um, somewhere and just talk to them. And I always say, mm-hmm. you know, any charity that's not going to take the time to talk to you, don't take the time to support them. I've worked it's at enough charities. I've spent enough time on the phone with people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just call and have a chat with them. It's not necessarily to donate money, but even just to learn more mm-hmm. about what they're doing and how you can potentially get involved, volunteer for some work that they're doing. You know, there's a lot of opportunities out there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I would 100% agree with that. We love it when people take the time to say, who are you? What do you do? How does your work work? You know, what what's happening internationally? Uh, because to me, then what that says is you are becoming personally invested. And that's the kind of people who long term can have a huge impact. I also just want to comment and say, I appreciate you reducing guilt for people in what you're saying, because we can't do everything. And that it's actually okay that there's a freedom to say, what are you wired for? What are you passionate about? And how can you connect that with something that is more than just self-serving, but it is looking outwards as well? 100%. Like I work in the sector and I've had to turn off some of the media content, mm-hmm. um, yeah, me you too. know, because it is overwhelming, particularly some of the images and stories coming out of Gaza. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's okay to say, you know, this is too much for me to absorb at this moment. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nikki, our time sadly is drawing to a close here. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you came into this discussion today, hoping that we would chat about any other final comments, closing comments you'd like to make? I mean, I could chat for hours. I know. So could I. I But I think the main one would be to just end with letting everyone know, while the world seems overwhelming and it seems like it's heavy right now, Mm -hmm. there is positive stuff happening, both in Canada and internationally, and seeking out you know, some of those stories as well mm-hmm. can can help and can help you feel like, you know, change change is moving and is being affected, mm-hmm. even if it's a little slower than what we want. But there is some good stuff happening out there, too. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. Great way to end. Thank you. I am curious to know if people are interested in more about your work, more about where you work, how might they find you? Yeah, you can find me on what was formerly known as Twitter. Um, I don't (laughs) really post that much anymore for reasons that are an entire other podcast. Um, But you can send me a DM on there if you want. Um, It's just at at Nikki Waits. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, My name, fortunately, is uniquely spelled. Mm -hmm. um, So you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm happy happy to chat with anybody. 
That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time to be here today and appreciate your insights. Great. Thank you so much. To explore what your next steps could be or to find out more about FH Canada, start by checking out fhcanada.org resources.